0: Good morning. My name is Dave Harvey, and I just want to let you know up front that I was, I was absolutely thrilled when Trent, a man whom I hold in deep, deep affection, when Trent extended this invitation because I realized it would provide for me a forum to say thanks following this conference that we've had over the last few days. So, as as you know, because it's mentioned a number of times, and you saw the video, Great Commission Collective conducted their uh, digital church planting conference. I, I never even imagined there would be a world where those words would be put together in one sentence, but digital church planting conference from here. And what I need you to know is that that conference probably would not have happened without the heroic service and expertise of the teams within this church. So, so Brian Springham, Josh Speer, Ben Hanna, uh, Micah, the, all of the teams, all of the people that are, are serving them and are serving you, they, they stepped forward to serve these 1,200 people from 16 countries and to give them an experience of the teaching, an experience of, of, of an online community, of, of, of the values that we all treasure so deeply. And, and in that, and equally important to that, I think your church, Gospel City, your church displayed yet another because you have a whole catalog of these, yet another example of your kingdom focus, of your, your partnership in the gospel with groups like Great Commission Collective. So this morning, I've come for one purpose, and that is to say, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's just an extra added benefit that I get to preach, but I really just wanted to say thank you on behalf of the 1,200 folks that attended that conference, on behalf of the, the Great Commission Collective team, thank you. Oh, that's fun. I like doing that. Okay, so you can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, because I've been invited to preach this morning from Acts chapter 20. And in order to do that, I want to start with a little bit of context. So the date is AD 57. The ship carrying Paul has docked in Miletus, which is a town about 30 miles southwest of Ephesus. And from there, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to join him. Now he does this for a couple of different reasons. Number one, Paul is an intensely relational man. For Paul, he's never merely fulfilling a job description. His hearts have been united with these men through ministry, through a shared life, and he wants to see them. But there's a second reason as well, and that is that Paul thinks he is going to die. We're going to discover together as we read this passage that his tone appears grave, his subject most serious because his heart is fixed upon Jerusalem. Now let's plug in in Acts chapter 20 beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public. And from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. The title of this morning's message is The Audacious Claim of the Gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would use this passage this morning to stir our faith And confidence in you to reach out for things that will bring even greater glory to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I used to find hiking to be an excellent way to explore life's deeper questions with my children and Such was the case a while back when my son and I were hiking up through the Pennsylvania countryside. And we hiked about five miles up to this area where where there was an outcropping of rocks. And we were sitting there and just taking a look at this breathtaking view of the Pennsylvania countryside. And while there, we met a group of college students... And we began to engage them, said, hey, what are you guys doing here? And they said, oh, well, we're actually here because there's a cave right down over the hill, and we come to explore the cave. And so they invited us to come along, and so my son and I found us following a group of people that we had never met to go to a place that we had never gone to do a thing that we had never done. And so we go into this cave, and we're crawling into this cave, and I look up ahead, and up ahead is a, is a gigantic cave cavern area, and from the top there's a light that kind of beams down on the floor. And I look up and there's a hole in the top of the cave. And almost as if this was the very reason they had arrived, the college students, one by one, begin climbing up the sides of the cave wall and go out the hole in the ceiling. And so the first one goes up, and the second one goes up. And as the, as the third one was going up, my son is next to my side, and I could, feel his, I could feel his intensity. I could feel his excitement and enthusiasm. And he's saying to me, oh, Dad, please, let me go up the side of the cave wall. I want to go up the side of the cave wall. I want to go through the hole in the roof. And, and the fourth college student went through. And, and I'm trying to explain to him. I'm trying to say, son, you don't understand Your mom sent both of you and I out today, and if I come home without you, that's going to be very complicated for dad this evening, so why don't we skip going up the side of the cave wall? But then I thought, you know, we're here to build a memory, and it will certainly be a memory, and Kim's 60 miles away, and she doesn't necessarily even need to know about this. So yes, son, go up the side of the cave wall. And my son scampers up the side of the cave wall and goes out the top. Now, I should have predicted what was going to happen next because almost as if it was choreographed from the beginning, they all four of them put their arms down through the hole in the roof, and they're doing this. They're saying, come on up come on up the side of the cave wall, and I'm, sitting, I'm standing at the bottom, and I'm just saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to go up the side of the cave wall. There's, a long time ago, I stopped feeling the need to go up the side of cave walls. There's something about hap- having your third child and having a mortgage and a bad back that makes you not want to go up the side of a cave wall. So I declined, and I'm standing there you know, feeling very old, you know, just wanting somebody to wrap me in a blanket and feed me prunes or something like that. (laughs) And so I say to my son, I'll see you back out. I'm going to go back out the cave. I'll pick you up on the flip-flop. We'll walk down the trail. So I pick him up. We're walking down the trail, and the air is thick with disappointment. And I, I realized in that moment that I had, I had missed the point of the entire day. I had made a mistake. And so I, I stopped and I said, Son, I'm going back. I'm going back up the side of the cave wall. And I knew it was the right decision when my son said, Yes, as if to say, My dad's not a wimp. <laughs> and so. 25 minutes later, I'm back in the cave. I'm staring up the side of the cave wall and I begin ascending the cave wall and I come to a point where there's a ledge and in order to get through the hole in the roof, you have to go from one ledge to the next and so you have to push off with one hand and your foot on the ledge and hit the other wall with the other hand and hit your foot on the other ledge and I, I pushed over and went to put my foot on the other ledge and missed the ledge and began to slide down the side of the cave wall. And so I just did the only thing that anybody would do, I just locked down everything there. And that's when my mind just began to run, Well, I thought, here, well, here I am, yeah, yeah. I'm stuck. There's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward, but going forward comes at great risk. I, I can't just give up. I can't say, oh, hang it, I'm just going to fall. I can't stay there, although, you know, the mind does funny things in those moments because you begin to think, yeah, you know, this is a cave. They're the same temperature all year round. This is not bad. Maybe we could live here. I could send Tyler home. He could get Kim and the kids. They could come up. We could live here. They could bring groceries. They could decorate me for Christmas. You know, your mind is just doing crazy things in that time. But in reality, there's no going back. You can't stay where you are. The only place to go is to go forward, but going forward comes at great risk. To go forward, there will be a cost. Do you get the sense that 2021, that this season that your life arrives right now with the same realization. There's no going back. We can't stay where we are. The only place to go is to go forward, but going forward comes with great risk. To go forward, there will be a great cost. What I want to say is that Paul is in a similar position Different reasons, but similar position in Acts chapter 20. I was confronting risk because I felt I was going to be missing a parenting moment. And by the way, I'll hold you in suspense no longer. I made it to the top and I did not die. (laughs) Paul confronted risk because he was a Christian. Paul confronted risk because he wanted to submit to the call of the gospel. Paul confronted risk because the Spirit of God compelled him. In fact, let's just look at the way he describes it in verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. If you wanted to write a banner over the Christian life, it would basically be, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me be there. See, for Paul, there was no going back. He couldn't stay where he was. The only place he could go was to go forward, but going forward brought great risk. The only certainty in Paul's life was the certainty of uncertainty. The only certainty was that there would be a cost. And what I want us to see this morning is that the gospel imposes a similar experience of risk and cost upon us. In other words, it makes the same claim upon us today because, you know, the the Christian life, the Christian life is a type of mysterious suspense that we live where we are ever constrained by the Spirit going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to us. And the more we understand that, the more we come face to face with an undeniable fact for both Paul and for us, and that is that for the Christian, the gospel makes. An audacious claim. The gospel makes an audacious claim. So, what is this claim? Well, I think there's three facets to it. So, let's let's just go through these. Claim number one. Here's claim number one. Go forth, uncertain. Go forth, uncertain. Verse 22, which I just read, provides a great summary of Paul's experience of the Christian life. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. In other words, God creates this compulsion, constrained by the Spirit is the language Paul uses. God creates this compulsion, constrains him to do something, sets him in motion, but withholds what's going to happen as he takes this step of faith. He withholds clear perspective and clear awareness of, of the future and the fruit that will come from the future. And this is just a part of, of Paul's walk almost from the very beginning. I mean, the thread of this begins all the way back at, at Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 8. Do you remember how God, Jesus Christ, called Paul? He said, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I mean, right from the very beginning, he's orienting Paul to becoming a disciple of another master, somebody who doesn't have control, somebody who doesn't live with clarity, somebody who has to be dependent upon something outside of themselves in order to move forward in godliness and and towards God. Rise into the city, you will be told what you are to do. Well, you know, I mean, the average person say, well, Lord, what am I supposed to do? God says, don't worry about that. We'll get to that. Right now, I just want you in motion. Right now, I just want to reorient you from being somebody who's constantly dependent upon their own voice, own preferences, own subjective sense, to learn what it's like to follow a Lord. So, we'll get to that. And that theme continues throughout Acts. I mean, Acts chapter 13, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Okay, well, great. You know, what's the work that you've called them to? We need more information. We need more clarity. God says, no, you don't. Giving you clarity is not the point. What you need to be is constrained by the Spirit going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Now, here's a question that we have to answer together. Why would God do that to Paul, and why would God do that to us as well? And I think there's a number of ways to answer this, but one of the ones that I think I want to focus on today is is that it is in part because our uncertainty, our ambiguity actually serves a vital role in God's plan. Our uncertainty and ambiguity becomes a daily reminder of our dependence upon God. It's a daily reminder that He's God and we're not. He's omniscient, I'm not. He's omnipotent, I'm not. You see, the very presence of risk in our life reminds us of how much greater God is than we are, because God doesn't take risks, nor does He ever need to be a risk taker. And by the way, from this passage, God is neither going nor not knowing because he, He's always knowing everything, and he, He's always everywhere. So, the presence of risk reminds us of our humanity, that we are not divine, that we are human, that we are not godlike, that we have limitations, that we're not omniscient that we have ignorance. We confront risk because we don't know the future. Only God controls all things, we don't. I I mean, one snowstorm teaches us that we control very little. I don't know what this area is like, but you know, we raised all all of our kids in Philadelphia where even, even the threat of a snowstorm, I'm not talking about an actual snowstorm, I'm talking about the threat of a snowstorm, the forecast of a snowstorm would shut down the city and would send everybody to the supermarket like like just robots walking down through the supermarket just saying to themselves, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread. I need milk and bread because milk and bread, there's something about a forecast of snow that makes me want to have a sandwich and a glass of milk. I don't get it. And you're no different than me. We we crave this risk-free existence, don't we? But what we we don't realize is that risk serves a central purpose in the life of the, the believer. Risk reasserts the daily problem that is uncovered first at the heart of the Gospel, that that we're not omniscient, we can't save ourselves, we are not independent, in fact, we're not strong, we are weak, we are dependent, we are limited, we must trust in the Savior, we must trust in Jesus to save us. We're not negotiating with Him each and every day over the game plan for our life. We have to just trust Him. We have to just trust Him for our journey. And and here's what I want you to understand, because some of you are living here right now, and there's a kind of interpretive grid that's forming in your mind for this. What I want you to understand is God delights putting us in the position where He constrains us by His Spirit going in a direction not knowing what will happen. He delights in doing that. You know why? Because it presses us to trust Him in new ways. The reality is that risk causes us to experience God in new ways, so God knows this because He's brilliant and He uses it in the formation of our spiritual life. And this is all over Scripture. Think about it. I mean, all the way back in Genesis 12, God thinks nothing. of saying to Abram, um, Abram, can I have your attention, please? Okay, here's the game plan. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go. Go where? To the land I will show you. What's the land? I'll get to that. Wait, I want to know what the land is. We'll get to that. Lord, wait, there's a lack of clarity here. No, we'll get to that. I want to see you going. I want to see you responding. I want to see you pre-orienting yourself to somebody who hears the voice of the Lord and can respond in faith without having the full package. You know, typically, our resp- my response is, hey, hey, Lord, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. Show me the land, and I'll let you know whether I want to go. Because we enter into this kind of negotiation process with God when in reality what's happening is we're trying to eliminate questions. We're trying to eliminate all ambiguity. We're trying to eliminate any need to trust Him and have faith in Him. And God says, no, I'm just not going to let you go there. I'm not going to give you a future where you don't need to trust in Me. And I guarantee you, Abram's experience with God became far different the moment he walked out of Haran into the, into the future without knowing where he was going. And I, I get it. You sit there and you say, Dave, this is crazy. It's absurd. It's irrational. It's audacious. That's my point. The gospel makes an audacious claim. And the first claim is, go forth, uncertain. Claim number two, prepare for difficulty. Prepare for difficulty. So, verse 23 adds this additional twist to the audacious claim. Paul says, constrained, or Luke says, constrained by the Spirit. I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. And then he adds this additional word, except in verse 23. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. I mean, so Paul wasn't completely ignorant. God did let him in on one detail, and that was that prison and hardships were facing him. I mean, if you're, if you're tempted to do something, wouldn't you be tempted at this moment to, to strike an arrangement with God? Like, God, can we just agree that you'll either bring me into the whole picture or grant me complete ignorance. But if you're gonna drop one little piece of information on me, does it really need to be that prison and afflictions await me? Because Paul was basically in a position where he knew there's danger up ahead, he just doesn't know where it's gonna come from. There's injury up ahead, he has a sense for the ending, he just doesn't know how it's gonna happen. I mean, it's kind of like, I liken it to, you know, like Star Trek, as strange as that may sound, but man, you know, all the Star Trek series and episodes, you know, whether it was Captain Kirk or Cisco or Picard or Archer or whoever it was, they all had the same M.O., and that is that… That, that they would all, like something would happen down on the planet and they would all go down to the transporter room and it would be, it would be all these main crew members. So you'd have, you'd have main crew member here and main crew member here and main crew member here. And then over here you had, you know, alien bait. That's who you had, this no name guy who you know was going down to the surface for no other reason than to get swallowed up by something down there. And, and, and every week, it would be the same thing. You know, every main crew member would get on, main crew member. You always wonder why that one guy or why that one woman would ever get on with everybody else because they were never coming back. And as you're watching it, you have a sense for the ending. You just don't know how it's going to happen. Here's what Paul knew. I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen, but I do know one thing there is a cost, it will be unsafe, there will be difficulties. And I don't know if this affects you the same way it affects me, but it comes right at for me, this fundamental human drive I have for comfort. I think we all share this in some way. We have this desire to remain hassle-free, which is just another way to say, I want to remain like God and rule over my life. And in so doing, we want to eliminate risk. We want to obliterate cost. We want to keep difficulties away. Because difficulties and discomfort, I mean, that, that's synonymous, right? If it doesn't assault our comfort, it's not really a difficulty. I mean, what's the big deal if Paul's saying in verse 23, I only know that hotels and hot tubs await me. It doesn't, you know, kind of land on us in the same way, does it? Difficulties by design strip us down, violate our comforts, and begin to root us again in what really matters. And this, this theme, I'll be honest with you, this theme resonates deeply for me right now. I, I, spent, I spent 30 years, close to 30 years, as a pastor in one church, and through circumstances I could have never predicted and circumstances I could have never avoided, we found ourselves as a family on the outside of what we had been part of for all those years. And maybe you can relate to this when I say, I I had a certain vision for what life was going to look like in my 50s. And for you, you could just erase that and color in my 30s or my 40s. But you have a certain vision for what life is going to look like. And I watched it just detonate. I watched God just kind of reach down and do a hard reset. And I begin to realize that, you know, sometimes God doesn't even tell us, you're going to Jerusalem. There's no Jerusalem. Sometimes He just says, you're going, not knowing. There's not even the Jerusalem in there. And, and, and this idea that, that the gospel, in order to move forward in the gospel, you have to embrace the reality that it will make audacious, unexpected claims that God's not committed to our life and maintaining our life in the same way that it is now, as comfortable it is now, and as protected as it feels now. That's not necessarily what God is committed to. And I know sometimes this can land in such a way that it can inspire us. And we think, yes, we're, we're ready to go. Well, I'll board a jet and go to Indonesia, not knowing what will happen, and die if necessary. But see, that's not where God starts this line of inquiry. God says, oh, that's great. Thank you very much. But can you go to children's ministry, not knowing what will happen, and serve and die there? Yeah, yeah. can can you step out and use your gift? Can you walk across the street to your neighbor, stepping out, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen there, and extend an invitation to church? See, Paul is speaking right now within his role and his call. The question we have to wrestle with is, what is your Jerusalem this morning? What does a spirit-constrained risk look like for you today? And if you can identify with what I'm saying, then I want you to hear God's solution. Accept that life is going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen. Because nothing attacks the idols of comfort quicker. Nothing makes us more dependent upon God than being led into an uncomfortable risk. And you know what? Some of you are there right now. Some of you feel compelled by the Spirit. You have sought God. You have sought counsel. And now you just need to take steps forward. And, and you know what? Others of us, we, we need to be there right now. We, we are too comfortable. I mean, last time we took a risk, nobody even knew who a Kardashian was. It's been that long. You're under-challenged, lethally bored. Well, here's God's prescription. Get going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen. What is your Jerusalem this morning? Maybe it means reconciling with someone, constrained by the Spirit going forward to reconcile, not knowing what will happen. Maybe it means planting a church. Maybe it means having a conversation that you've avoided for a while. Maybe it means going to the Fresh Encounter prayer meeting this evening and sharing your story, because to you that just seems overwhelming, and you don't like praying out loud, but you need to go there. See, here's the point we want to get at. Here's what where, where this lands for each and every one of us. That is that God… God loves us too much to allow us to squander our lives in the gray twilight of ambivalence. He loves you too much. And so He makes an audacious claim upon you. Claim number three, value the gospel above all. Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, verse 24, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So, Paul here kind of slips on the accountant's hat and begins to assign value to things. And you know what? Here's where we see the true audacity to the claim. Because Paul begins to say, you know what, I value the gospel above my own life, but I do not account my life of any value whereas precious to myself. I mean, I read this and I think, can, can he really be saying what it appears he's saying, that fulfilling the call to the gospel is more valuable than even his life? I love this. The Apostle Paul, the only guy with a kind of justifiable exception, an exemption from having to do something radical because he's irreplaceable, because if he leaves that church and that area, what's going to happen to him? And he he does exactly that. He doesn't view himself as being too valuable. But he says there are times we're constrained by the Spirit going to Jerusalem, I need to go. Paul values the gospel even above his relationship, and we have to think about this because inherent to Paul's definition of success seem to be relationships. Verse seventeen in this this book, this chapter, I should say, you know, he sends for the elders. He talks about how I lived with you. I I served you with tears. We didn't read through verse thirty-four, but they're ultimately expressing their support. They're praying. They're crying, because they're separating. And you talk about risk, later on in this this chapter, Paul says in verse 29 and 30, listen to this, Paul says, um, just want to let you know, after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in, and even from among you, there's going to be bad things popping up, Uh, peace out, I'm still out of here. In other words, the existence of future problems, even serious problems, wasn't compelling enough to keep Paul there because the gospel was making this audacious claim. Because as, as important as these relationships were, he, he valued something a bit more, and that was the gospel that went forth. One of the quotes that I, I used at the conference this past week was a quote by, by, by John Piper, And I love this quote because sometimes we we think that the best way to honor God is to protect our money and protect our people. And, And John Piper comes up with this statement. He says, quote, No local church can afford to go without the encouragement and the nourishment that will come by sending away its best people. The way I would translate that is to say the gospel makes An audacious claim. Paul says, value the gospel above my life. I value the gospel even above my relationships, though I love people dearly. And then lastly, he values the gospel above above the fruit of the gospel. Now, I want you to think with me on this one, because I realize this is a strange one. You know, we all long for fruit, we're doing what we're doing in relationships, in our job, in ministry, as parents, in our small group, serving in the way we serve. We're longing for fruit. But, but what we begin to encounter in Paul's definition of success, of ministry success, is that Paul did not hold God hostage for a certain kind of fruit, a certain kind of fruit. And only that kind of fruit that would validate his success in life or his success in this world. He simply sought, to use his words, to be faithful, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Because Paul recognized that there are some things that are so worthy, mere obedience is enough. There are some things that are so worthy that the fruit, appears long after the service takes place. There are some things that are so worthy that it's glorious just to be a part. A few years back, there was a church that we planted out of our church in Chester, Pennsylvania. It was planted by a heroic man and wonderful family. And this church planted in Chester, Pennsylvania, a very impoverished area, impoverished city south of Philadelphia, urban area, many risks, many sacrifices being made. But as that that time, as that church began to continue and as time passed, Ari Mangrum, the guy who led the church, became more and more persuaded that that the Lord was drawing the church to a close. This was incredibly difficult because there was a core group of people that went out, there were prayers prayed, people fasting, much sacrifice, money that was spent. But this was the conclusion that they came to. And so on the final Sunday, Cornerstone Church of Chester had a banquet. They had their final meeting, and then they had a banquet together, and they used this banquet to just review and testify and and celebrate God's goodness among them over the past five years. And as that that banquet drew to a close, and and the history of that church ended, there was one brother sitting off to the side who just began to spontaneously sing this song haven't you been good? Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for drawing me out of millions lost. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Haven't you been good? And as his voice echoed off the wall, people began to join in and 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 there there was a holy hush that kind of settled over the group and and, uh, different corners of of the banquet hall. The children began to get up and dance around and the Spirit of God began to stir. And people began to lift their voices and sing this song, earnestly joining in with voices that believed the substance of what they were singing And during that period of time, Ari, the guy that planted the church, was sitting off in the corner, and he realized in that moment that there are some goals that are so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. That the gospel is so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. And so, Gospel City Church You, we, are called to reach this community. We are called to build this church. We are called to risk invitations to other people. We are called to approach the next 10 years, not with the demand that everything we do will bear fruit, but with the sense that it's glorious to even make the attempt. You know what? I wish I could stand here and say to you that the day of cost and risk are over. But if if you're anything like me, I sense it's just beginning. And so, constrained by the Spirit, we are going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to hold our hands before You, which represent our life, our our callings, our family, our responsibilities, our jobs, our homes, our incomes, our portfolios. We want to hold them up before You, and we want to say, not to us, Lord, not to us. But to your name is the glory. To your name, these things have been given to us. And we pray that you would help us to not live as if we can't, we can't set these aside. The good things, the fruit that you've given us. That we can't live aware that the gospel makes an audacious claim. Lord, help us to know and understand how this applies to each of us today for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.